c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Alright, welcome back to another episode of Fat French and Fabulous. I am, as always, your host, Jessica. And I am still Janelle. I just got the one name. Just the <laughs> one name. Just the one. Just the one. And Jessica's not stealing my identity this week. Surprisingly so. not. But the only reason I am not is because we don't have time for that. We don't have the time for shenanigans. We are getting right into the anatomy murders of Edinburgh. Oh, we're not we're not doing any kind of cutesy intro to this. We're going straight to dismemberment. Uh, we have nine pages of material to get through. We're going oh my God. right to okay, dismemberment. Is... Uh, All right, we're going... If we are, if this is going to be a one-parter, I gotta get going. We're not going to ease anybody into this. We're just going to go straight to the gore. All right, no, this is right like on the gas. Right on the gas. Watching an episode of Saw on fast forward. Woo! Yeah, this is surprisingly a week about murders in which I am in control of the mic. <laughs> uh, it's therefore going to be old timey murders. So the anatomy murders of Edinburgh are more commonly known by the last names of the two killers in question, Burke and Hare. And the big question you have to ask with Burke and Hare is serial killers or entrepreneurs no 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 no, no. That, that's how people describe people who turn humans into sausage this is not we're not glorifying murder yeah. for like the seventh week in a row no and and notably a scottish court came down hard on the former definitely serial killers was this what was this a thing hmm? oh i was gonna say like what court convened on no the no. legality of turning people into food uh no one ate them no one ate anybody in this particular she instance. says like that makes it better i mean like i personally think it makes it worse so that would be far more entertaining and far more useful oh. in, a, in a sort of like a practical kind of way. I guess science is good enough. <laughs> if not, not culinary science. No, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this was deemed to be not an acceptable business practice by, by the judges of Scotland. No, because, I mean, if nothing else, it'll give you prion diseases, which could be a fun future episode. Nobody ate anyone, Janelle. Nobody. I'm saying that's why you can't do it. Even if you are starving and you have no other option but to chow down on tasty tasty people it's a bad plan you'll go crazy if you are going to eat Do people not. uh don't eat the brains that will absolutely give you a prion disease and then you'll get dementia and you'll die in that order and it will happen very quickly and it will be painful and you might eat some more people by mistake in the meantime mm -hmm. stick to the muscle fibers you're not gonna really know what's going on after you've eaten a human brain yeah notably the reason why one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, I've, I've learned my lessons after being told off for this several Eating times. human brains? No, one of the reasons why it's dangerous to eat other of Your beings species. of the same species is because you have very limited defenses to the kinds of diseases they have. If they were capable of getting it, you're probably capable of getting it, unlike the average chicken disease. You're not going to get a lot of chicken diseases, which isn't to say you shouldn't cook your and chicken. And this has been Science <laughs> Corner with Nell and Jessica. Yay! Don't eat people. Don't eat people. Also, you don't want to eat a human brain, and it's weird that I know this, but um, because, well, no, it's not that weird that I know this. I'm yeah. a grad student in psychology. It's weirder that I know it. It's, it's weirder <laughs> that you know it. I'm sure you know this. The human brain, every time you've seen like a brain in a jar, that's a human brain that has been chemically fixed. Yep. Um, what's gushing around in your skull right now is basically jello. Basically jello. If you wanted to shove a finger like deep into your brain, you could do you it. Could. There's very, there's almost no resistance. There'd be no resistance. Yeah. So enjoy thinking about that. I mean, it would fuck you up. It would fuck you up big time. Yeah. That's 
that's why you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Like, you definitely, you shouldn't. You should not. Just to clarify. The idea of brains having any kind of solidity, that is an illusion caused by the images of brains that we see. Chemical fixation. Mm -hmm. That's something we do to brains to make them last forever in jars on our desks. Because otherwise they would rapidly deteriorate. Oh, yeah. And also because gross. I don't want a jelly brain holding my papers down. I want a solid, pretty brain. Yeah, like not the kind of brain you can take out of the freezer and just like wiggle it around and press press your friends. <laughs> the human body is even more disgusting than you ever thought possible. Yay! Burke and Hare killed 16 people between November 1827 and November 1828. Oh, so really no lead up into this. No. We're just going straight to this is this was straight to murder. Straight to murder. They they killed 16 people over the course of literally a year. Oh shit, they were efficient. They were very efficient. I think this is really what you get out of tag teaming your murders. I did not mean that as a compliment, like, for the <laughs> record. That was an exclamation of surprise. That was not a praise of their technique. I don't know. I I don't know. I think you were giving them their due. If Jessica says it, it's a compliment. (laughs) They were very efficient (laughs) killers of men. That being said, uh, if they had tried this during a different era than 19th century Scotland, they probably would have been caught very quickly. That's true of a lot of serial killers, actually. Yeah. I mean, they're still big in popular culture, but the age of the serial killer is on its way out. They peaked in the 70s for various reasons. Everything to do from, like, police jurisdictions talk to one another now, which was sort of the main way that serial killers didn't get caught, Mm -hmm. to the fact that, like, bicycles helmet laws are a thing now. We have fewer children getting catastrophic brain injuries as children and then growing up to... Yes, and we have less lead just free-floating in the atmosphere. Yeah, these are legitimate. Like, these sound like jokes, but this is true. Yeah. If you just feed a kid lead and then bash him on the head a couple times, he's gonna do weird shit to the neighbor's cat. Yeah, we don't fully understand it, but we do know that childhood head injuries and better policing equals less serial murder. Mm -hmm. Yay! Science! If you don't want your kid to be a violent Fender when they grow up. Give them a helmet. Don't bonk their head <laughs> against the sidewalk and then make them lick a lead pipe. No, no, do not. <laughs> that is decidedly the best way to make your child into a serial killer. I'm going to make a fortune writing parenting books. Uh, I, I, we're going to be famous. <laughs> Move over, Dr. We're gonna Spock. Be the, we're going to be the next Dr. Spock. <laughs> Real dude, not Star Trek reference. <laughs> I got. I even got the degree for it. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're going to legitimize the whole operation, but we are, we are charlatans. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so they then sold the corpses to a doctor at the University of Edinburgh, specifically at the Royal College of Surgeons there. The Burke and Hare case is an example of a widely publicized, highly sensationalized serial killing a full 60 years prior to Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This case was infamous to the point that it spawned copycats, legislation, and the extremely specific verb of burking. Burking? After the pair's signature method of killing, meaning to murder in such a way to disguise evidence of violence, usually through suffocation. That is such an efficient way to say that oh my gosh it's just effective and again that's not a compliment no. that's ju- that's just a remark we're just in awe not in a good way i am a sucker for efficient language not every surprise <laughs> is a good surprise or when you're me every surprise is a bad surprise i i'm an anxious person and i'm skittish <laughs> it's just because you hate fun and childlike wonder if you're gonna surprise me keep low and, and be ready to duck. <laughs> your roommate probably gives you like an itemized list of all of your Christmas presents like three months in advance. That's his preference, but I also appreciate it. 
<laughs> you guys have a weird business-like relationship. So specifics of the case are ambiguous or outright contradictory in many of the sources. Because they're old? <laughs> Given that they're old, yes, but not actually that much in this case. The fact that these are very old cases is one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of information on many of the victims. But more specifically, a lot of our understanding of the cases comes from interviews done with the two killers themselves, both of whom had a lot of incentive to lie. And the two interviews given by Burke are contradictory. And also the one given by Hare to the police. And additionally, there was heavy media speculation and outright spinning of lies during and after the trial because the public was fascinated with this stuff and journalistic integrity wasn't exactly a thing just yet. Oh yeah, because this is back in the day when like newspapers were a thing that made money. Like these were a Mm -hmm. viable business model back in the day. Yeah. They were lucrative. Yeah, and I mean, they would take literally anybody who would talk about the case. Literally anybody. And very little standards for like who is a trustworthy source. You can't just run a background check on somebody who just sort of like this flea-bitten vagrant who wanders in off the piss-stained streets of London. Like, there's no... Yeah. I assume this is London, isn't it? No, this is Edinburgh. Oh, right, Scotland. Fuck, you just said that. I imagine they're just as dirty. Dirty, but Scottish. Notably, this is nothing against Edinburgh. All streets are piss-stained in this era. Yeah, just literally everywhere. It's just a horrifying time to be alive. But it's Scotland, so I imagine there's just, like, discarded haggis every now and then. Yeah, but don't worry. Even if, though, it's a horrifying time to be alive, you won't be alive very long. It's not comforting. It's not no, better. I guess it's not. No, no. I, they it's sounded not. better in my head. Yeah, it's just every, everything is horrifying. <laughs> I've just been getting too many concussions and licking too much lead. <laughs> God damn it. You need a better parent. <laughs> yeah, so in order to truly understand the Burke and Hare murders, one must first start with the story of one Robert Knox, a charming, well-respected surgeon at the likewise esteemed University of Edinburgh. Knox was a talented teacher and anatomist whose classes were in high demand among medical students, oh, no. particularly after 1827, when human dissection became compulsory to be classified as a surgeon. I feel like anyone who became a doctor in those days just inherently had something wrong with them. Because at least today, like, yeah, like, your interventions now will sort of help, usually. You sort of know what you're doing. But back then, it was like, who wants to be elbow deep in a gut? And then have them die anyway. Like, it didn't help. Everyone just died. Like, there was a certain amount of prestige in being a doctor, but surgery was quite a bit less prestigious. Because it's gross. This is, like, an inch away from butchery. This is getting elbow deep in someone's abdomen, bare-fingered, and just, like, moving shit around until you found something interesting. Yeah, this this is not an eloquent delicate art no (laughs) we do it with robots today they did it with hacksaws yeah this is literally give the guy a bit of leather to bite on we're going in (laughs) oh yeah we don't have anesthesia yet that's right they're fighting you (laughs) and they are screaming screaming (laughs) they are screaming you know when you watch horror movies from back in the day and like you always have these huge burly medical orderlies those were for a reason and it was to hold down screaming frantically trying to escape patients (laughs) Yeah, someone who wakes up in the morning and is like, you know what I want to do? That. That shit right there. They're not okay. Mm -hmm. They're, I'm just suspicious of all surgeons from this era. And orderlies especially. There is a high amount of sociopaths in this particular field. (laughs) Just in general, people were pretty much just eating lead straight back then. It's not good for you. Oh yeah. People are probably becoming more empathetic over time due to the fact that we've stopped giving ourselves neurotoxins in baby bottles. Progress. Progress. 
So Knox's dissection classes were advertised as including a full demonstration on fresh anatomical subjects Vile. for each course at a time when the demand for medical cadavers was higher than it had oh, ever no. been, but the supply was extremely constrained. Oh no. Yeah. We're getting right into like questionable incentive time. Yeah, you gotta get them fresh. They're just no good once they yeah, started to Yeah. Once they started smell, like getting a little whiffy. Oh yeah, there's no there's no ventilation. This is just what a just, just a shit time to be alive. Oh, yes. And a shit time to be dead, considering. <laughs> Fresh anatomical subjects, they aren't just everywhere. Like, this is not a lot of refrigerations going on. It's very hard to keep a body. You can't just go to the store and buy one. And yeah, you can just go down to the pub and ask if anyone has died recently and like, oh yeah, someone might have a corpse. But you can't just walk up to somebody and be like, hey, if you could drop dead at like Tuesday. I know you're, I know you're sick, but like, I got a class to teach Wednesday night. If you could just time that shit for me. It's not really an option. Yeah, so like steady supply of corpses isn't really an option, both due to legal limitations and social stigma. Donating bodies was incredibly rare due to public horror and religious beliefs about the appropriate treatment of the human body after death, as well as legal constraints. Yeah, when Jesus raptures you, you you gotta look pretty. Yeah, like you gotta look good for the rapture. <laughs> like you got buried in your in your Sunday best, and you you're know, coming back in it. Yeah, you're gonna look fly. Yeah, you know, you want to look good. <laughs> um, the only other corpses that could be legally dissected for medical and scientific purposes were those of executed criminals. I was gonna guess homeless, no, but I guess, no, no wait, they locked up the homeless, so it works out to the same thing. A lot of homeless people would be included in this, but, like, this is also a time where workhouses are super common. Oh, good. It wasn't legal to take body, unclaimed bodies from workhouses yet. <laughs> um, we had small <laughs> respect for human dignity. Just the tiniest shred of decency. And this was at a time when capital punishment was declining, not growing. Oh, shit. Yes. In 1827, there were only five executions in all of Scotland. Oh. In 1828, there were only two. Oh. Yeah, meaning that acquiring cadavers for dissection would have been necessarily difficult. Never mind one for every course taught by a single professor at a single university in a single city in a given year. So he got creative, I assume. <laughs> He got a little creative. A great deal of Knox's prestige as a professor and as an academic relied on his ability to perform frequent medical dissections on human cadavers, and thus his ability to acquire a consistent supply of recently deceased human corpses. Due to the heavily constrained supply of legitimately obtained corpses, this meant that Knox had a strong incentive both for the sake of his standing in the community and for the sake of his career to acquire the fresh bodies he needed through less legitimate methods. Mm, I studied John Locke in high school. I know how this ends up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this doesn't, this is I know not the good. the free market like, addresses this problem. <laughs> ugh, like, you know, constrained supply with, like, a high demand. Mm, mm. <laughs> this is getting right into perverse incentives territory. It's not good. <laughs> This is not good. As an interesting aside, the list of offenses which carried the death penalty in 19th century Scotland are fascinating. Really? In addition to the two executions for sheep theft, <laughs> there was also an execution where the source didn't list the nature of the crime. It just wrote baby farmer. What the fuck is a baby farmer? Yeah, so this was actually the profession of the woman in question. Baby farming was a derogatory term for the Victorian era practice where women who usually had absolutely no relevant training 
took care of babies for a regular fee or simply adopted them in term for a sizable lump sum. So babysitting. Not exactly. Okay. They either raised them or they passed slash sold them on to permanent homes. And like, I personally think this should be called baby ranching because you're not really farming the babies. You know, like, they're kind of like, li- they're closer to livestock than vegetables. <laughs> when you said baby farming, I just thought it was like, you're executing a baby for the act of growing vegetables. Like, don't you fuck up our food supply. Yeah, not exactly. It can be a punishment. We don't want inexperienced infants growing our turnips. Yeah, so no, baby farming was either babysitting slash wet nursing. Or baby selling ring. Or it was paid for for-profit adoption. That's like a wide range of things. Yeah. Anywho, due to the final financial incentives of an upfront sum and the cost of raising a child, there was a strong financial incentives for baby farmers to, uh disappear kids who were hard to find parents for. So, so to literally plant them uh, in the ground. Yeah, like, well, the, the, there was like quite a few baby farmers who were like prosecuted and executed for murdering that their was charges. Just what I, that was what I implied. You don't put babies in the dirt because they're alive. I'm a bit literal-minded, okay, well, Janelle. <laughs> we learned a new metaphor. Yes, they literally planted the babies. In the dirt, once they were dead. They didn't grow, though, no, which was very that's, sad. That's, <laughs> that's the opposite of what you should do if you want them to grow. And, and part of the problem was that uh, most of the women who gave up their babies in this instance were, like, women who had had children out of wedlock. Yeah. And therefore, if <laughs> like, like, they went back looking for the kid or if they tried to buy them back afterwards or if like they suspected something had gone on wrong uh they had limited ability to address their concerns to the police due to the social stigma of premarital sex and having a kid out of wedlock so basically it has always sucked to be alive but it has always sucked more always to be an unwed mother no matter how shit life is for everybody it's always the shittiest for that group just look on the bright side if you're not an unwed mother yeah you're doing okay. You're doing okay. It could be so much Things worse. Things could be worse. It doesn't even matter how bad it is. If you're like a homeless vagrant with leprosy, at least you're not trying to look after a kid. Mm, I don't know. Th- those feel like they would be tied. Once your fingers start falling off, I feel like you're like, just- No, I mean like if you were both. Oh, if you're both. <laughs> well, then fuck. Yeah. So speaking of horrifyingly perverse incentives, okay. Knox, like many anatomists of his time, offered a sizable fee in exchange for fresh bodies. It's sort of a no questions asked sort of policy. Yeah. Like he wasn't- asking where these bodies had come from. It was a nod and a wink, here's seven pounds kind of arrangement, oh, which resulted in the questionable profession of resurrection men. This is grave robbing. This, feels this is grave, grave robbing. robbing. They're not coming back from the dead. The reason why Auntie left her grave is not because Jesus came early. This is this is grave robbers. Yeah. They are stealing people's family. They are taking them right out of the grave. Oh, God. <laughs> Bit different from robbing the cradle, but also wrong. Also not equally wrong. wrong, but also wrong. Man, we have EI now. Like, Like, you don't have to dig up people's dead grandmothers to make a living anymore. I mean, the social safety net isn't perfect, but it no longer compels the unemployed to dig up corpses. It doesn't have (laughs) grave robbing sized holes in it anymore, so. Progress. Progress. Doctors knew that the majority of the bodies they bought were either sold by destitute relatives or outright criminals, and the people they traded with for cadavers repeatedly were undoubtedly grave robbers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they knew. They knew where these corpses were coming from, but they cared more about their profession than they cared about someone's grandma going missing and someone getting upset. They knew that they were supporting a black market of dubiously obtained corpses, but it was generally done with the idea that grave robbing was a largely victimless crime, with a 
level of detachment from the process that provided the legal cover of plausible deniability. Oh, yeah. I mean, at my undergrad institution, which I guess I probably won't name for legal reasons. Um, Check the innocent and the not-so-innocent. I mean, it's on my Facebook profile, so this isn't really... <laughs> Whoops. But when I was there, I took an anthropology class, which worked with human skeletons. And on my first day of class, I have no idea if this is true or if the professor was just trying to freak us out. No, I mean, no, there was truth to this. Either is plausible. If they have tenure, they can get away with anything. They can get away with anything. The bone collection that we worked with was unusually frail and had an unusually high incidence of disease. And they told us the reason for this was because when our university was buying a collection of human bones in the 1960s, which is a perfectly viable thing to do. Oh, completely acceptable. Just put that in the paper. (laughs) You're generally supposed to buy them from legitimate sources where people have donated their bodies. I guess what happened was the university decided to save money and went to a disreputable source in India. Oh, boy. (laughs) And so the collection of bones at my undergrad institution comes exclusively from homeless people in Calcutta. (laughs) What is now, yeah, what was then Calcutta. They were just sort of picked up off the street. And the university didn't find out until they got the bones and were like, oh, "Oh, these people didn't live well. No. Because you can tell. That's the whole point of the bone collection. Yeah, like they are, these are very malnourished people who did not have access to adequate health services. Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, so I can identify pretty much every bone in the human body on site but the problem is is that if it doesn't come from a malnourished homeless person i'm gonna think it comes from a giant because every bone i've ever worked with is tiny frail and slightly damaged you just have a confused slightly off model understanding of the human skeleton <laughs> a little bit yeah uh, but these so these issues still really haven't gone away it's still kind of hard to get people to donate their bodies to science yeah like we can make jokes of how like this was stigmatized back in the unenlightened days of the 1800s people are still grossed out by the idea of like some grubby medical student digging around with their guts. And a lot of times people who do choose to donate, if their families can override it. Oh, they can opt out at any time. Happens all the time. The families are like, on second that, gross. You can't have. Yeah, which is unfortunate because people are more likely to donate their own bodies because I'm more cool with the idea. Because you're like, I'm dead, I don't give a shit. Whereas if you had to think about what makes you more comfortable, the idea of donating your body to science and like some grubby medical student touching your gallbladder or donating your mom to science and having some grubby med student touch your gallbladder. What makes you more uncomfortable? For 90% of you, it's your mom. That's true. Also, man, who knew that all medical students were grubby? Take a shower, losers. Not all medical students. It's just that the grubby ones really stick out in your mind. It's just like (laughs) one of them is going to touch a body without washing their hands first. Vile. And they are vile and they should be immediately ejected from the institution. Excellent. So I guess the morals to this episode are, one, don't let Jessica and I control medical school admissions ever, because we will make terrible choices. And wash your hands. I was going to go with <laughs> donate your body to science if you feel comfortable because there's a mass shortage of bodies, but I mean, sure, wash your hands. Also that. Also that. We can have more than one moral. Do both. Wash your hands and donate your body to medical science and or current medicine. Organs are always needed uh, if you if you feel comfortable with that. If you're the kind of person who's like, oh, yeah, whatever, you can can play hacky sack with my gallbladder. Yeah, just donate it. I don't think there's anywhere where you can sign up to be a hacky sack. I mean, you've devastated me and you've ruined all my plans for my will. <laughs> I, I, I filled out the organ donation sheet. I'm, a, I'm an organ donor on my driver's license, but I had no option for that. Oh, man, that's a shame. Take this box to be recreation equipment was not on there. See, I, I heard of a dude who donated his skull. He was an actor to be uh, the skull from Hamlet, and I just thought that was wonderful. I thought that was the best. Oh, that'd be fun. (laughs) Being a prop would be fun. Being a prop would be fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, I'm also an organ donor, so uh, social pressure. Social pressure. 
I thought you and I were just going to have like a pissing contest about who's the better person. But I mean, yeah, we could also pressure other people. That's not a contest I'm going to win. So I opt out. That is true. I am a terrible human being. It just so happens that I have a particular fetish for people using my body parts after I don't need them anymore. You have probably seriously considered throwing a human child down a storm drain on numerous occasions. So I just don't meet any that many storm drains big enough to throw a human child down. But what if you did? But if I did, <laughs> but if I did. I'm not saying it's out of the question. All right. Thank God you don't live in an era where you could make money for grave robbing because you'd be out there right now with a shovel. I would. I would. I (laughs) I have bills to pay. I am a starving student with tastes far out out of line with my actual budget. (laughs) Oh, good. Awesome. I like the nice Parmesan. So, the high price Knox placed on fresh bodies is undoubtedly what first drew Burke and Hare, and the blind eye he turned to the provenance of their wares was undoubtedly what encouraged them to grow bolder and bolder in acquiring bodies. You're probably the only person I know who would use the phrase provenance of their wares in casual conversation. That's not a scripted line. That's literally the first phrasing that came to her mind. Yeah, never mind for, like, tibias and human corpses at all. (laughs) No. Never mind in the context of grave robbing at fucking all. (laughs) And yes, it was the first thing I thought of. (laughs) William Burke and William Hare were a pair of Irishmen living at Edinburgh. Burke was a middle-class cobbler described as hardworking, good-natured, and pious. This was before the murder. (laughs) I was gonna say. And then he killed 16 people for fun and profit. Mostly the profit. Although maybe a bit for fun, he did kill 16 people. He had been married back in Ireland, but his wife had refused to join him in his new life in Scotland. His second wife, or at least common-law partner, it's not entirely clear, was when Helen McDougall. And some people report this as McDougall, but, like, it's very clear that she preferred McDougall. Only you would research that. <laughs> and she, she may have been, like, the accomplice of two serial killers, but I'm going to respect her preferred name. Well, let's, let's not be rude. She's been dead for, I assume, like, 150 years, but... At least 150 years. But still, let's not be impolite. <laughs> Hare, on the other hand, busied himself with the lodging house of his wife, Margaret, the one she had inherited after the death of her first husband. So these guys weren't broke. No, like, they were middle class. Right. Uh, in a poor area. They were- So it wasn't like butcher people or starve. This is very much a, like, spare pocket change, build an addition to the house kind of money. Yeah, like, these people were property owners, they were artisans. Burke, I think I saw an estimation, an estimate that he made about a pound a week, which in modern money would be $100, about. Well, 100 pounds. It's still not good, actually. Yeah, which is still <laughs> not good. This is the lower middle class. They're not starving, but they are struggling. Well, that forgives it then. Now that I know they're lower middle class, I've completely changed my mind. Hare's origins are at best ambiguous. We don't know where he was born with any specificity other than Ireland. Uh, We don't know what he did before moving to Edinburgh. We don't even know how old he was at the time of the murders, which is amazing considering he was a known murderer who spent quite a bit of time in police custody. They were just like, eh, not interesting. Eh, whatever. The two were good friends, both lived in the Westport district alongside their wives, and neither had any prior criminal record. Uh, Oddly enough, the first transaction between Burke, Hare, and Knox involved no major criminal activity, barring several misdemeanors concerning the appropriate and dignified treatment of a human corpse. (laughs) A lodger of Hare's by the name of Donald died without any undue assistance in late November 1827. So he croaked, and they didn't. Yeah, he just. uh, (laughs) He was. He had been. He had been sickly. 
Technical term. Like, hey, hey, Donnie, how you doing? <laughs> That's how people die in Jessica's mind. That's what the world is to her <laughs> all the time. Hey, you don't know if I have any experience in watching the life fade from people's eyes. Your whole, yeah, your whole life runs on Courage the Cowardly Dog logic. That's your world. <laughs> I never read Courage the Cowardly Dog. It's not I was a book. more of a Captain Underpants kind of person. I mean, it's a TV show. But you're <laughs> I also didn't watch it. <laughs> yeah, clearly. I, I was all about them dumb bunnies. <laughs> oh my god. Dave Pilkey was my bro. You are uh, aging yourself. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm very <laughs> old. This created some consternation as the unfortunate Donald, while alive, had owed hair four pounds in rent. Well, it's only fair then that they take his body. <laughs> oh. Yeah, well, he's very, very dead now. He can't exactly pay it. <laughs> and he still technically owes the money. We're going with the pound of flesh here? <laughs> yeah. Take take your pound of flesh. Or in his case, like, All however many pounds he was in his weakened, disease-ridden state. So four pounds at the time was roughly equivalent to 400 pounds today, according to the nifty calculator available on the website of the Bank of England. Neat. For reasons of time and decency, I will not regale you with the monetary history of Scotland. Please, God, no. I will fly out there and put you out of your misery. <laughs> I will not force my perverse interest in monetary policy on you poor innocent folk. <laughs> Absolutely not. We're going to stick to the far more innocent, far more entertaining subject of murder for profit. Good. Good stuff. So when Hare complained to Burke about his financial woes, Burke suggested selling Donald's body to, to an anatomist, thus decided they stole the corpse, still at Hare's lodging house, and hid it under a bed, replacing the weight of poor Donnie boy in the coffin paid for by the local parish with Burke. After nightfall, they smuggled the body to the Royal College of Surgeons, where they were directed to Knox's office. They there exchanged the corpse formerly known as Donald, no questions asked, for seven pounds and ten shillings, which they split four pounds to Hare, three to Burke, and five shillings each, <laughs> on account of Hare needing at least four pounds to cover his losses, and Burke being a real pal. This is like the worst capitalist supervillain super origin story ever. Oh, it, it, it sounds like <laughs> the beginning of a romantic comedy, except it gets way less funny later on. Oh yeah, no, this is not, this is a dark comedy. So there's no firm consensus on the exact dates or the order of the murders or the sale of the proceedings to the university. Holy shit, nobody kept records back then. Oh my gosh. Well, they especially, like, the university might have kept records, but, like, they knew they were up to some shady shit. So there's a reason why there's not exactly a lot of receipts for this. Yeah, maybe don't write your crimes Do not down. write receipts for, like, <laughs> yeah, your illicitly don't... obtained corpses from grave robbers. Do not do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't make an invoice. There's no mm. bill of sale. It was probably at least somewhat sensible of them not to have left a paper trail. This is not this is not good. Um, <laughs> but a compelling case can be made that the first murder was of another lodger, a fellow named Joseph, in the early months of 1828, who was the only victim to be smothered by a pillow rather than by hand as all the others were, suggesting an early experiment in method before they settled into their preferred modus operandi. So he started with a pillow and then was like, you know what? Pillows are for pussies. We're doing this barehanded. Apparently, it took a lot longer to do it with a pillow. Really? I don't know. But, like, that just seems like it massively increased the risk of getting bit. <laughs> oh, God. And you do not want to get bitten by somebody who lived in that era. No, absolutely not. If they have any teeth, they are full with rot and disgusting parasites. You should probably just get bitten by a tropical bat if you have the choice. You're going to get a terrible infection. Your hand is going to drop off and you're going to turn purple. The human mouth is disgusting. At the best of times. Like, even modern human mouths that we clean regularly are, are gross. absolutely repulsive. 
compulsive de- repositories of disease. Do not get bit by a human. Do not get bit by a human. You're better off getting bit by a dog. Human beings are disgusting. <laughs> that's that's always yeah. True. It's it's a, it's a truth through time and space. <laughs> human beings have always been disgusting. They will always be disgusting. <laughs> Excellent. The impetuous for this possibly involves the lodger taking ill with a serious fever that the hares worried would threaten their business by scaring away lodgers through the specter of infection. After plying the already delirious Joseph with whiskey, they killed him, Burke pinning him by lying across his torso, hair smothering him. This body fetched them a pretty price of ten pounds. Reasonable, given the high quality of the body compared to the usual cadavers available to the university. I just like that one dude's job was just literally to lay on the guy. Just splay on him. What will become obvious through this is, like, Burke was was less okay. He still did all the killing, but, like, he had a more intact conscience than Hare did, and was therefore quite a bit more uncomfortable with the actual killing. Yeah, if you're gonna, like, lay across a dude while somebody else chokes him to death, you're still pretty guilty. Like, you're still- You are still very guilty. This is still participation. I'm not saying this makes him any less guilty. I think it's just more an indication of the fact that Burke was less comfortable with the killing. He was a little squeamish. Hare, however, he was a genuine- Was about that shit. Died in the claw sociopath. He got up all in that. All up in that? All up in that. (laughs) All up in that murdering. All up in that elderly, sick man suffocation. Disgusting. That was what he liked to do. It it was gross, and then you said it out loud, and now it's more gross. (laughs) It was his jam. Awesome. Some people like crochet. Some people like knitting. Some people like uh, smothering old men with their bare hands. Oh, good. (laughs) It's uh, it's needlepoint or murder. <laughs> Them's the options. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. This set the pattern for the rest of Hare and Burke's murders. Find a vulnerable potential victim, subdue them with alcohol, smother them, carry them over to Knox's in a chest or barrel, and collect the money. Their 16 known victims were a mix of lodgers, acquaintances, and unlucky street people. They were predominantly sick, elderly, or disabled. Most were women. So they were punching down. They were absolutely punching down. These were two grown, healthy men who were preying on poor, sick Anybody that Burke Elderly could individuals. sit on, I Anyone guess. Burke could sit on, basically. Anyone he could pin down with ease. <laughs> they were going for the sick. They were going for the weak. Dicks. What I like is that these two dudes were carrying a barrel through the streets of Edinburgh to the back door of a hospital every night. And their lodgers just seemed to check out mysteriously and leave all their shit there. And nobody at any point was like, hmm. Weird. This is probably not on the up and up. I should probably find other accommodations. When you are killing 16 people over the course of less than 12 months, you are killing them fast. That's true. And when you live in, like, a lodging house in this era, nobody gives a shit what happens to you. In addition to these people all being fairly weak, they're also socially isolated. So there's not that many people checking what happens to them. These are elderly widows, elderly widowers who don't have anybody else in the world. And this is a time and day in which it's very easy to go missing and have no one really question where you are, or at the very least not have an idea about where to find you. So basically call your grandma or there's a chance that she will be sold for medical for dog meat basically dog meat <laughs> The best scenario here is that she's sold for, for as a medical cadaver. Uh, we're talking dog meat. Oh my god. That's a whole other scandal, Jessica. <laughs> Nobody's selling the elderly for dog food. Yeah, okay. I am exaggerating. No one's selling the elderly for dog food. Until you suggested it's it. It's more of a hobby. It's not really something you can make a lot of money at. 
We need to arrange a supervision schedule for you. <laughs> moving right by. Moving right along. <laughs> Don't pay oh that much God. attention to things I say. They are not indicative of my actual hobbies and actual opinions, except when they are. Wink. <laughs> you can't wink on a podcast. That's the whole point of the format. This is a disaster. Other than preying on the weak, however, Burke and Hare were pretty much indiscriminatory. They killed a garbage scavenger, they killed a laundry lady, they killed a relative of Burke's wife, Helen, who happened to be in town. Oh, well, good, they weren't bigots. That's all I ask of my murderers. Equal opportunity murder, that's what I'm about. They weren't prejudiced, they just liked to pick on the, the young and the weak. <laughs> the youngest of the victims was a mute boy killed alongside Aww. his grandmother. But probably the riskiest incident was when Burke, passing a drunk woman being escorted by a police constable, was just like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's exactly his response. Oh, he claimed God. to know her to the police officer and offered her to bring her to her lodgings himself, to which the officer said yes. <laughs> so lazy police. Lazy police. Killed a woman. Absolutely. Likewise risky was the woman hair killed when Burke was away on business. Or, I mean, it might have been a holiday. I don't quite remember. Which... <laughs> Hare denied doing at the time, but was exposed when the additional money he had cued Burke to check with Knox's office where Hare had sold them another body. Really, he denied that one. He fessed up to everything else and then was like, no, I can't. I could let down, you know, the state and the public and general standards of moral decency, but I can't let Burke down. He's my- Oh, uh, no. He's my bro. My buddy. Hare was willing to lie to basically everybody, including Burke. Uh, when it suited him to do so, because Burke was, like, I don't want to say he's more cautious, but, like, this was the only solitary kill, and it was exclusively Hare who did it. Maybe he just wanted money for uh, Burke's birthday present. I don't know if he got the birthday present, because this caused a brief rift between the two, but it was one quickly healed. And what I need to point out from this incident is just, they are playing fast and loose with this. They get riskier and riskier... As they go along. They got sloppy. They get sloppy very quickly. That's actually generally how serial killers are caught, by the way. Absolutely. They normally, once they fall into kind of a modus operandi, they get sloppy. It's human nature. Mm -hmm. this is, we just, we suck. If you've ever <laughs> wondered how trained people get into car accidents, or like how experienced chefs end up having kitchen accidents, it's because after you get used to a particular task, it becomes rote, and then your hind brain just takes over and you devote far less attention to it. You're just in full lizard mode. You are in full lizard mode. You're not hollowing out that girl's chest cavity with the usual care and attention that you might have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, it's not normally... A lot of these serial killers, if, you, if you're really the type of person who spends their Saturday nights reading about these sorts of things... Obsessively Googling about murder, yeah. Yeah, and you haven't yet been committed. A lot of them aren't solved through brilliant police work. A lot of them are just solved because... They fuck up. Yeah, they did something incredibly stupid. Mm -hmm. They make a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, like, they get caught. So there you go. Public safety depends on laziness. I think there's like a Ted Bundy quote about how like, you know, at a certain point you just forget where your wrench is. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it's pretty horrifying. I mean, yeah, if it was, uh, that would be horrifying coming from my plumber. Never mind uh, one of history's most notorious serial killers. It's kind of a thing that serial killers eventually do. It's just that Hare and Burke are becoming sloppy and at ease at a massively a far more rapid pace. Their entire timeline is way faster than the average serial successful serial killer. Yeah. So for the sake of brevity, I will not delve into the details of every single one of their murders. I'll instead focus on the three that led to Burke and Hare's eventual downfall. I was going to say, there got to be kind of a theme to them after a while. Sat yeah. on them, strangled them, put them in a barrel. Well-oiled machine. Pretty rote, pretty habitual. Ho-hum. It's just, you know, going through the motions of killing and ending another human life. 
<sighs> just snuffing them out one by one. <sighs> it's basically boring mm-hmm. after a while. <laughs> one of their earlier victims was a woman named Mary Patterson, who was probably a prostitute of some description. Oh. More salacious retellings of the Westport murders, particularly contemporary journalistic accounts, fixate on Patterson as a beautiful fallen woman. But this smacks of the unfortunate habit we have of attributing socially undesirable behavior and moral deviance to the victims of heinous crimes as a way of dealing with the cognitive dissonance that comes with bad things happening to good people, quote unquote. So in humanese, yeah. uh, we don't like in thinking real that you can be a good person and then get stabbed in the face and die for no reason. Yeah. So we tend to just think that murder victims deserved it because we're all pieces of shit. That's what Jessica just said. In actual human language, <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable that bad things happen to good people and that a perfectly innocent, perfectly wonderful person could get horribly murdered and nothing would protect. We don't like that. Yeah, so we like to pretend that all women who die are streetwalkers. Basically. Because we're all, again, pieces of shit deep and down. And we tend to fixate on the salacious aspects of murder because that's a good way of separating ourselves from the murder victim thinking like we will i wouldn't have been like her i wouldn't have been in that situation i'm a good person who will never get ice picked to the face i'm a good person who's going to die with all of my organs where they should be i pay my taxes she was probably a prostitute but the degree to which journalistic accounts and historical accounts fixate on it is a really dehumanizing tactic yeah also being a prostitute does not mean that you deserve to be strangled and then barreled yeah absolutely not you still deserve to keep all your organs and this is not to mention the strong financial incentives of yellow journalism in a media environment with a, without a strong culture of ethics and an undereducated low information audience. People ate this shit up. Newspapers bad. People illiterate. Thank you, my human translator. <laughs> <laughs> so Burke met Mary Patterson alongside her friend Janet Brown in April 1828 in a tavern, bought them whiskey, and invited them over for breakfast. This is the tinder of the day. Mm, just showing up to a bar and drinking all night, and eventually, like, convincing two possible prostitutes to come home with you. I see no fault in my comparison. I stand by it. Again. Tinder. Tinder. After drinking some more at Burke's, Patterson fell asleep at the table while Brown and Burke kept chatting and drinking. Oh, shit. This was interrupted when Burke's wife, Helen McDougall, arrived and started a row with him. That is an argument. Why would you use the word row? <laughs> I don't know. I just get in a certain you really British character. mindset. <laughs> Basically, the argument was about the fact that he was chatting up a young woman in their home. <laughs> I can I can see her point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. It's kind of uncomfortable that you're starting this argument in front of guests, but also you just came home after your husband's been out drinking all night and he's just there with two girls who he's flirting with. You know, I don't blame you for being kind of cheesed. It's one of my biggest pet peeves when I come home and there's a prostitute passed out on my kitchen table. Oh my gosh, every time. It's just like, again? Come on, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> come on. Brown, wanting none of the argument, left. She didn't go very far, though, not wanting to leave her friend. She just went a small way to fetch help. But when she came back with assistance to get Patterson, she became lost, probably due to a combination of the alcohol in her system and the unfamiliarity of the place in question. Oh, damn it. By the time Brown found Burks again, Patterson was gone. So this was a life that could have been saved with Google Maps. Google Maps, where were you? Personally, I blame Microsoft. You could have saved Mary Patterson, Microsoft. That's not who owns Google Maps. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of right in the name. 
<laughs> oh, yes, Google. That's, there we go. Well, <laughs> we're piecing it together. Whoever owns Google, you're you're at fault for this. That would be Google. <laughs> you're to blame. Google owns Google. Oh, Google owns Google? We're earn- we're learning lots today. <laughs> we're, we're just learning an amazing amount today. But you know what? I'm also going to blame Microsoft. Apple Maps? Oh, no, that's owned by Apple. I don't understand technology. <laughs> I'm I'm baffled. It's amazing she can record this from afar. I blame all of you. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, all of you are to blame for the death of Mary Patterson. It's amazing that you're speaking into a microphone and not just screaming into a tin can in your yard right now. As, as far as I know, I very well might be. <laughs> the fact that you're hearing this does not mean it's being recorded at all. Maybe it's just like the reptilians recording me from behind the bushes. Who knows? Who knows? And now, and now we're, crazy. we're crazy. Yes. So when, when Brown came back, she asked about Patterson. But the hairs, both of the hairs, Margaret Hare was notably in on the scheme. She got a pound share for each corpse. The hairs lied and said that Patterson had left. Problem was, unlike most of their victims who were sickly, elderly, or largely unrecognizable, Patterson was an attractive young woman with close friends. Brown kept looking for Patterson, even after a further lie from Burke said that she had went off to Glasgow with an unknown man. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, oh, she's a hussy. She's off with a dude. That's what, no, that's what they do. They just casually abandon their whole life and everything they've ever known and all of their friends and they just hussy on over to Glasgow. And they don't even mention it. No. She don't, they don't even mention it. They just hussy on over to Glasgow. It's a verb to them. If Brown had any suspicions at that point, well, she never took them to the police, probably on account of the whole being a prostitute looking for another prostitute thing. I can see how that would deter somebody. <laughs> yeah. Technically, when you're classified as a criminal slash moral degenerate, you might not ask the police where your other criminal degenerate is. They're probably not going to be very helpful. Further, because Mary was quite beautiful and in a highly public line of work, people noticed her when she walked about town. When Burke took her body to Knox's, Patterson had been dead less than a half a day, perhaps only hours. While she wasn't notably warm, her body hadn't even had time to stiffen with rigor mortis. Knox's assistant actually asked who she was because he thought he recognized her from somewhere. Oh, uh uh-oh. Burke lied and said that he had bought the corpse off a woman from the Cannongate area, which is indeed where Patterson was from. People just dealing corpses in the street. You know how it is. Yep. You know, normal Edinburgh business. And he said that the fresh cadaver in question had drunk herself to death. This apparently passed muster. I mean, they're about to cut her up. I feel like they're going to figure that out. She is basically pickled at this point, but like (laughs) she gets more pickled later. Oh, God. So unlike the rest of the bodies, Patterson's was not immediately dissected. Instead, as Knox thought the corpse was a particularly good example of the female form and a human musculature for his classes. And I am strongly avoiding just saying like he thought she was a pretty hot corpse. Well, you just did, so... That's basically the undertone of this, is he thought she was a pretty hot corpse. He had her body preserved in alcohol and displayed semi-publicly for three months. Oh, God. Knox even had an artist come in and paint it. Oh, God. What? This, oh. I don't even have words. I just have indiscriminate noises of disgust. Don't keep women in jars. Don't. I mean, I guess that was a thing you could do back then and not immediately be arrested. Put on some kind of watch list. You should be on so many lists. Ugh. This is just a level of comfort with dead human bodies that even I find baffling. How lonely do you have to be 
Did they just kill, like, the only symmetrical woman in all of Edinburgh? Like, was everybody else just- Just the only one with an even face. Yeah, everyone else was just this, like, horrible potato-faced, <laughs> snaggle-toothed monster. Yeah, like, she was just the most attractive woman in Scotland, to the point that even after she had been dead for several hours, she they was still- They turned her into a paperweight! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. This is why we have an explicit rating on our podcast. Yeah, they gave her the two-headed calf fetus treatment. <laughs> oh, it's worse. It's so much worse. <laughs> it's odd because I'm kind of okay with people having preserved human bodies. What? If they're owned by institutions. <laughs> There's an academy of science that just has a, a full-scale skeleton. I'm cool with that. See, I'm like more okay with a skeleton than I am with a entire pickled corpse. In the hallway. That's a little more unokay. I personally, I think we should just go with plastic figures. I'm way more comfortable well, yeah, with that. Yeah, because it's plastic. Every science, yeah. every high school science class has a plastic skeleton in the corner. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. Whatever. You can buy that shit at Target for 50 bucks. I, I might be splitting hairs here. I'm still more unokay with an individual owning a pickled woman than I am with an institution owning a pickled woman. <laughs> oh my god. Your own personal person pickle. I've never given it that much thought, but I, I too, I'm not cool with people pickles in somebody's living room. Further, Medougal, Burke's wife, kept several items of Patterson's clothing, or, as the police call it, damning evidence. <laughs> These are not smart people. No. God. <laughs> Trophies will get you every time. They are getting away with this mostly by accident. People are becoming aware of the fact that people are going missing in Westport. There is no way they're you not. You gotta space it out a little bit, guys. Yeah, just stop hunting in the exact same small area. <laughs> of your house that you own. Barely a month apart. <laughs> Seriously. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> not that we're giving them advice. Their second last victim was likewise highly recognizable and widely known, far more so than even Mary Patterson, an intellectually delayed, physically disabled, homeless vagrant. Oh. A young man named James Wilson, known as Daft Jamie. So he didn't get the, um, people pickle treatment. No, no. They, nobody pickled him. <laughs> <laughs> he was considered oh a little too lumpy for the pickling process. <laughs> oh my god. It was like the, uh, the vegetable standards in the EU. Only the most attractive, most symmetrical of pickles get to be pickled. There's no way that was the most esoteric reference you could have made. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm sure everyone is familiar with the EU vegetable standards. There you go, EU fans. <laughs> oh my god. They are notably, notably silly <laughs> and oddly aesthetically fixated. I say we should eat ugly fruit. It's just as good as attractive fruit. All right. We'll just add that on the moral pile, I guess. <laughs> that is my moral stance. I, I may not be w able to muster up the conviction to vocally condemn cannibalism, but I will condemn the fact that we waste ugly fruit. <laughs> I have a problem. Heart's in the right place, kind of. Eh, a little too far to the right. <laughs> anyway, Wilson was a common sight on the streets of Edinburgh as he supported himself basically through begging. Wilson wasn't the kind of person you'd easily forget. He was clearly mentally handicapped to anyone who met him, and due to his feet being malformed, he walked with a limp. Apparently, he had been sleeping in doorways and stairwells since being kicked out of the house by his struggling wid widowed mother sometime after the age of 12, though it's not super clear exactly when. Despite that, he seems to have been pretty happy. He loved telling people dumb riddles and was disruptively enthusiastic during church services. Aww, it's kind of cute. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of adorable. He sounds like kind of a cute little guy. Yeah, he's kind of like a happy, Aww. you know, hard on his luck kind of guy. Your harmless neighborhood. Yeah. 
Yeah. He dies, doesn't he? He he does. Oh. His prized possessions uh, were a snuff box and a spoon. Oh. In many ways, 18-year-old James Wilson was a deviation from Burke and Hare's usual pattern. He was 18? Yeah, he was 18. Oh, oh this is so much worse. <laughs> it's It gets sadder. Brace yourself. It gets sadder. Oh. For one, this was the one and only time they attacked a full-grown man who wasn't weakened by extreme illness. Wilson was disabled, sure, and quite probably weakened by malnutrition or exposure due to his life as a vagrant, but he was far from sickly. He was also big and strong, but he was a gentle soul who refused to fight, even when physically confronted, to the point that he was regularly hassled by gangs of small children. (laughs) And I'm talking five and six-year-olds. Everything you say makes him sound more adorable. Oh, he's the cutest. And like, these <laughs> these little gangs of children would mock and chase him. Kids are dicks. Kids are dicks. Like they would make fun of him, and he they would put up their dukes, and he would he would cry and run away. Oh, fuck you, little monsters! Back to the baby farm with all of you. And this is possibly probably why they targeted why him. Burke and Hare picked him out as prey. Ugh. One of the conspirators, Hare said it was Burke, Burke says it was Margaret Hare, found Wilson wandering about looking for his mother. Oh, God. And got him to follow them back to Hare's by telling him that they knew where she was. Ugh, it got worse. Of the two accounts <laughs> of James Wilson's death, Burke's is probably the more accurate of the two, as it is the more complete, more coherent retelling of events. But he does certainly have an incentive in this instance to lie when it comes to who targeted Wilson. Burke even denied having ever seen Wilson before killing him, which is unlikely in the extreme. Burke was less of a liar than Hare, but he also had more of an intact conscience, for whatever that's worth, which may have resulted in him deflecting the blame onto the Hares in this specific instance. So neither one of them admitted. Well, they both admitted to it, but they sort of passed the buck on who decided right. to kill Daff Jamie. Because that's that really what matters at this point. You've killed 16 people. I don't think they're going to let you off the hook for not singling this guy out. No. Keep in mind, the death of Daff Jamie, more than any of the other deaths, is what infuriates the people of Scotland. What enrages them. Oh, because he was just a sweet little guy. Because to them, he was an innocent. He was a sweet, well-known character of the streets of Edinburgh. He was harmless in every way that he could be. He didn't hurt a soul, and he couldn't have. At Hare's, Burke and Hare tried to ply Wilson with whiskey, as per their usual, but Wilson never was much of a drinker and refused to even finish a glass. They then invited him to lie down for a rest while Margaret Hare left, locking the door. Burke and Hare waited for Wilson to fall asleep, then tried to kill him like they had their other victims, which was a miscalculation in the extreme because Wilson fought. (laughs) I mean, probably don't kill anyone that you can't successfully sit to death. Yeah. He was not a small guy. He was a big, big kid. He managed to push them off and wound up in a struggle with hair on the floor, but there were two of them and eventually they subdued Wilson and killed him. Wilson had fought into the end and both wound up bruised and beaten. Burke in particular ended up with an infected wound because Wilson had bit him at some point during Ah, the attack. We knew human mouths were filthy. Filthy human mouths. (laughs) (laughs) Look at us. After Wilson's death, they gave his clothes to Burke's relatives, and Hare took his prized snuff box as a souvenir, giving the spoon to Burke. Dicks. Dicks. Then they just scavenged the body of this poor kid. 
I also like that they almost got caught doing the the woman in because she was visible. And then they're like, you know what would be an even smarter move? Let's kill somebody even more recognizable. That's going to end well. They almost got us the last time. So let's just. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, I don't think they were aware how close they were to getting caught. (laughs) And there's quite a few deaths between uh, Mary Patterson, who's one of their earlier victims, and Wilson, who's their second last. But this is them absolutely getting cocky and sloppy. (laughs) They never should have targeted Wilson. And it was absolutely an escalation. If you're trying to kill people and sell their bodies as effectively meat or playthings, don't kill Brad Pitt. No, no, don't do people it. People will know. <laughs> people will figure that shit out. Don't kill somebody that everybody yeah. recognizes. Yeah, don't target... I don't... I'm really struggling to come up with celebrities, which is how you know that I stay mm-hmm. inside too much. Yeah. Just don't... Don't do it. Don't do it. You're gonna get caught. You were absolutely going to get caught. They had developed a degree of overconfidence after killing 14 times before and not getting caught. But even then, attacking Wilson was stupid and dangerous. As the Edinburgh poor went, Wilson was way too well known and did not make for an anonymous corpse. No, you can't just show up with Chris Pratt's body and be like, I found this. (laughs) Yeah. In the Uh, road. That looks weirdly like that guy from Guardians of the Galaxy. What? No, no, no. What a crazy random happenstance. Crazy thing, you know? You know, maybe you can convince yourself that the pretty girl in the jar over there can't possibly be the one you're thinking of, but there is no way to deny that this body was anything but Wilson due to his highly visible and highly unusual physical deformities. Further, due to the fact that Wilson was stronger than most of their victims and Burke and Hare were too impatient to wait for a better opportunity when Wilson refused to drink himself into a stupor. He was pre-tenderized? <laughs> yeah. They undoubtedly left marks of violence that were not only evidence to, to what passed for forensics at the time, but obvious to anyone who cared to look. News of Wilson's disappearance spread quickly because, remember, he had been looking for his mother when he had been lured away from the market. His mother noticed him missing when he failed to turn up and began looking for him. Uh. And unlike poor Miss Brown, who had the misfortune of being a prostitute looking for another prostitute, Mama Wilson was the mother of a well-known, well-liked character from about town, whose disappearance was immediately suspicious due to his intellectual delay and relative lack of independence. The news even reached Surgeon Square, where resided none other than the esteemed Robert Knox. Ooh. Yeah. People missed Wilson. Mutual friend of ours once told me that there's no greater political force in this world than concerned parents. Yeah. And that is a truth that holds through centuries. Yeah, prostitute looking for her prostitute buddy, people are kind of like, meh. Yeah, Mom looking for her baby, like, people give a shit. People give many, many shits. The mother of a disabled young man comes looking to you for help? You're gonna join the search part. Yeah. Especially if you know the kid, which a lot of people did. Uh. It is here that we contemplate the mens rea of Dr. Knox. What did he know and when did he know it? What did he suspect and choose to ignore? (laughs) Is this Watergate? It is unlikely that Knox himself actively participated in or overtly encouraged the murders in any way. But one of the reasons Knox gave Burke and Hare particularly good prices was because of the quality of the cadavers, i.e. how fresh they were. Which was, as it so happened, consistently fresher than most grave robbers could manage. At some point, you've got to be, it's got to be illegal just to be that oblivious. Like, that's got to be criminal in and of itself. Yeah. Even if you tell yourself that maybe they're just acquiring the bodies of poor people without any family who kick it of perfectly natural means around from around the neighborhood. After, like, the ninth, yes, yeah, super fresh corpse, like, uh, it 
at that point, it should be... <laughs> people gotta ask some questions. Yeah, like, the frequency of extremely fresh corpses of ambiguous cause of death is not unweird here. <laughs> and the case of James Wilson is particularly damning for Knox, in that several students recognized the body. Oh. While Knox himself denied that it was him when the uncanny resemblance was pointed out, the body was dissected and disposed of very shortly after news of Wilson's disappearance reached the college, well before other bodies that were already in storage, and for some reason with the main dissection taking place after the removal of the distinctive malformed feet. So they knew. They fucking knew. Shady university. (laughs) This is the shadiest fucking shit. While Knox was never charged with the murders, the incident ruined his reputation, very rightly, and made him nearly unemployable. Yeah, I don't have a lot of sympathy, actually. In most modern functioning legal systems, Knox could and probably would have been charged and found guilty for reasons of willful blindness. Namely, that there is sufficient evidence that a sensible person in Knox's position should have known or should have suspected that criminal behavior endangering lives was in progress and instead profited off of the crimes and acted to conceal his own complicity. Or basically, I'm super dumb is not a legal defense. It's not going to work. No. Especially if you're a surgeon. They're not going to buy it. There is a standard of like what a reasonable person in your situation would have thought of this. And it is definitely not that everything was fucking fine. Yeah, you can't just (laughs) claim to be stunned. I'm a moron (laughs) is not going to fly with a jury. It was the death of the final victim, an old Irish woman named Mrs. Doherty, that finally brought Burke and Hare to the attention of the then small Edinburgh police force. Oh, so that didn't even do it. They were just sort of like, well... No, that didn't even do it. At this point, they're like, this is definitely murder, but I mean... They know that people are going missing, but they don't know why yet. I mean, Knox, like, he knows at this point. Knox knows, and he does not go to the police at all. He's like, "Mm, them fresh cadavers, though. Worth it. Absolutely worth it. Doherty was new to Edinburgh. Burke, after running across Doherty, claimed that his mother had had the same maiden name and that they must be therefore relatives, then invited her back to his lodgings. Mm. Apparently this was just something you could say to like a random person in, you know, 1800s Scotland. (laughs) Hey, we got the same last name. You should come over. Yeah, we must be related. Come to my party. And they're just like, sure. Yeah, apparently she was really excited by this. Excellent. Feed me dinner. Burke, Medougal, and the Hares showed Doherty a good time, passing the evening drinking and dancing. There was also the Gray family at the residence, composed of an ex-soldier, his wife, and their child, who were poor relatives of Medougal who had been staying at the Burks that week. But they gladly agreed to move elsewhere for the night to make room for Mrs. Doherty. Well, that's nice, except she probably dies. No way, she definitely dies. Yeah, yeah, she definitely dies. She dies. She she very much okay, does. Well, spoiler alert. Well, meaning in in nature, but uh, whoops. Oops. <laughs> so the Greys left that evening and came back in the morning when they were surprised to find that the nice old woman from the day before was gone. Medugal claimed that Doherty had gotten overly friendly with Burke after drinking too much, and oh, Medugal had therefore made her leave. So, like, they basically just slandered this elderly woman. Oh, yeah, she was trying to hit on my husband. Do you have to go with, like, <laughs> she became a sexually aggressive geriatric? Can you not just say, like, she had a cat to feed? Like, yeah. So she just had to leave super early, maybe. <laughs> she needed to go do some shit. She's got a life. No, she's a geriatric sexual predator. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, Mrs. Medugal, but I think you're 
your husband can fend for himself. I think Burke can protect his own fucking virtue from this elderly woman. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. That was the first lie that came to Helen McDougal's head. Like, oh yeah, she tried to seduce my husband with her missing teeth and gums Ooh. and wrinkly apple core face. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> After breakfast, Mrs. Gray tried to approach the bed Mrs. Doherty had been assigned the night before. First searching for her child's stocking, second to fetch some potatoes stored nearby. Both times she was told off sharply by Burke with the rationale that the pipe she was smoking might have caused a fire. Interesting. But I feel like it was unusual to not be currently smoking at this point in human history. Yeah. Although it was definitely more unusual for a woman to be smoking. One of my sources, a 1921 book by William Ruffhead, uh, goes out of its way to specify that Mrs. Gray's smoking was unladylike. Oh, judgmental, sir. This is from 1921. Then this was a legal textbook. So like apparently that was perfectly acceptable academic standards of the day just to like go out of your way in the middle of describing a the discovery of a series of grisly murders to police the gender and the unladylike behavior unlady of a woman like. who has been dead for some time now from a century before. <laughs> well, I mean, if we let the women get uppity for even four seconds, oh, humanity will fall. The next thing you know, they'll be like on the internet recording rude podcasts. Voting and being president. <laughs> no danger of that, though. That hasn't happened. No danger of that. Absolutely none. <laughs> to Mrs. Gray, Burke's comportment was odd and out of character. She had been previously allowed free reign of the house, and Burke became notably, noticeably agitated afterwards. Mrs. Gray, showing more sense than anyone else in this story so far, <laughs> became immediately suspicious. <laughs> something's not right. Yeah, something's not right about this. However, unlike most people in horror movies, she hid her <laughs> suspicion and bid her time until that afternoon when it was just starting to get dark and a window of opportunity opened when Medugal, who Burke had left as a guard, also left the house, leaving the Greys alone. So she was smart. She was very smart. She didn't just blunder into- No. She she waited them out and bid her time. Yeah, so the real world does not run on horror movie logic. No. <laughs> Mrs. Gray would have survived to the end of the horror movie. Excellent. I like that in a woman. <laughs> Smoking and surviving. That's all I ask. Yeah. Not giving a shit about gender norms and making it out of the murder house in one piece. It's all you can ask for. It's all you can really ask for. Mrs. Gray, immediately after Medugal left, made a beeline for the bed, and beneath it she found the stripped corpse of Mrs. Doherty, her face stained with blood. I hate it when that happens. Horror movie shit. I'm just trying to clean my room, and then there's like this <laughs> naked, elderly, bloody corpse. It's like, fuck. Uh, every fucking God time. God damn it. It's, it's one of the reasons why I sleep with just a, a mattress on the ground. You know, there's definitely not a single naked, elderly woman beneath my bed. That just sounded like a cry for help. <laughs> No matter how you justify it, it's not good. I'm just saying when you're all like, oh no, I found another corpse beneath my bed. I'm going to be living life in the lap of luxury on my filthy mattress in the middle of the street. I mean, I live in New York City. Finding the odd corpse beneath your bed is sort of, <laughs> well, at least it's not a rat. Maybe my landlord will lower the rent this month. Who knows? Who knows? Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. <laughs> God damn it, corpse. If you want to stay here, you've got to share rent. Yeah. Like, at least split with me. Come on. Come on. <laughs> it's not enough room for the both of us. I think you could get kicked out of your apartment for subletting if you find a corpse under your bed. <laughs> <laughs> Running an illegal Airbnb for the dead. <laughs> so the Greys obviously freak. They pack their shit and they try to book it. Understandable. Understandably. I'm not questioning their judgment here. I'm with them on this. But as they're in the process of leaving, they run into Medugal, who's on her 
her way back. Mr. Gray confronts her about the corpse, and she begs them not to reveal what they know and tries to bribe them 10 pounds a week. Oh my god. These are her poor relatives. 10 pounds a week is a lot to them. They would have had to, like, triple their corpse output in order to pay that and keep making a profit. Oh my gosh. Which is exactly why Mrs. Gray is disgusted, refuses, <laughs> and the Grays leave. She does not want to be benefiting or profiting off of their uh, corpse-selling business. Yeah, she she knows where the money comes from. She's not a yeah, dumb she's She's onto this. I dig Mrs. Gray. She knows what she's doing. The Grays leave, Medougal following behind, desperately trying to cajole them. They then run into Mrs. Hare, who, after figuring out the situation, tries to convince them to go to the tavern and discuss matters. The Grays, not being the least bit convinced, or morons, oh, told them, if I may paraphrase, to go stuff themselves and proceeded directly to the police station. Yeah, I mean, like, when somebody <laughs> sells corpses for a living, just don't go into dark places with them. That's just... Yeah, like, don't let them get you drunk. Don't accept any drinks from them. Uh, don't be alone with them, ever. It's just survival instincts. Get the fuck out of there while you still have safety in numbers and you're still in a public place. I mean, well done, Grays, though. I know they've been dead for a long time, but, like, props. After searching the house, the police didn't find the body. They did find a significant amount of blood in the straw of the bed and articles of clothing that once belonged to Mrs. Dockerty. Following a tip from a Mr. Patterson, the doorman of Robert Knox, unrelated to Mary Patterson, hmm. police proceeded to number 10 Surgeon Square where the doorman showed them to a tea chest containing the body of an old woman that Mr. Gray, among others, identified as Mrs. Doherty. That's pretty airtight as far as forensics go for the day. Yeah. It's rock solid. But even so, the police were not entirely certain that they would be able to secure a conviction. So they concentrated on what was a typical strategy for the day, flipping the suspect for which they had they had the far weaker case in terms of physical evidence and witness testimony, namely hair. I would have thought it would just be like beat a confession out of somebody. That was probably their second go-to. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the 1800s. <laughs> if all else failed. If all else failed. Police brutality. Police brutality. Uh, a long, grubby tradition of the, <laughs> the men in blue. Burke was the one who had acted as the primary agent in selling the majority of the bodies and therefore more familiar to Mr. Patterson, the doorman, and Knox's assistants and students. Burke's home was where the Greys found the body of Doherty and where the police found the effects of the victims. Hare turned King's evidence in return for immunity from prosecution, which oh, further dick. led to two additional charges, the murders of Mary Patterson and James Wilson. This in turn protected his wife due to spousal privilege. So this isn't like a, these these guys weren't like an inspirational bromance story. No. Like the minute he got a chance to turn the other guy oh, in. Oh, absolutely. He took it. He fucking right under the bus. Hare turned on him in a fucking second. Immediately. <laughs> immediately. It turns out people who will help you murder other people for money aren't trustworthy. Weird. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Baffling. <laughs> you think you know somebody and then you both get arrested for a series of 16 murders. Uh, there's no such thing as friendship anymore. Not true friendship. <laughs> That's weird. You'd think you could trust a guy who strangles vagrants. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out vagrant stranglers aren't that trustworthy. Who knew? My worldview is shattered. I'm not the man I was before. I'm reeling. I'm just <laughs> devastated. Who am I? <laughs> Burke and Medougal were charged, but unlike Burke, who was convicted of the three murders, Medougal's charges were found unproven, which is distinctly different from finding her innocent, but carries the same jail time, which is none. <laughs> uh, Look at that. That was a clever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Burke himself confessed, giving extensive account of the murder 
murders and largely keeping his wife out of it. God damn it, Burke. Burke was sentenced to execution and dissection, which oh. took place at the Edinburgh Medical College, the same as his victims, and was quite possibly the most well-attended any dissection of the university had ever seen, even the popular dissections led by Robert Knox. So they may not have had modern justice, but they did have poetic justice. Poetic justice, <laughs> yes, indeed. Some rather grisly tokens were taken from Burke's body. A death mask, which was fairly typical. That was kind of a that thing. was That was sort of a rote thing that people did. If you've ever um, used a CPR dummy, you have put your face on a death mask, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Specifically the death mask of a woman who I think drowned in the Seine River from Paris. Yeah, she was uh, an anonymous woman who was fished out of the Seine River. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever wondered why every CPR dummy you've ever sucked on has the same face, that is why. Yeah, yeah. This was another one of those mm, hot corpse moments. She sure is pretty. Yeah. <laughs> it was a hot corpse moment. Yeah, her death mask became like a fad and then when they needed a face for the CPR dummy, they were like, shit, this dead French woman from Might as well. hundreds of years ago. Shit, yeah. Fair enough. People make questionable decisions. I don't know. But the death mask was kind of common. That's that's just what they did. Yeah, but drowned sane woman is probably the most kissed woman in history, which is kind of weird. And we will never know who she is. Yeah, never know. Never know. Horrifying. Horrifying. Among the other tokens, his skeleton was preserved as an anatomical model, and a length of his skin was taken and then tanned and used to bind a small pocketbook. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. being made into a wallet Weird. was an option. Color me surprised. <laughs> <laughs> That's not normally included in funeral packages these days. Will you be going for uh, cremation, burial, or purse? Your, uh, your choice. Your choice. <laughs> I want to be made into a chair when I die. Upholstery. Uh. <laughs> Oh, God. Sit on me. <laughs> Ew. Ew, it's so bad. Place your buttocks <laughs> upon my removed and tanned Enough. flesh. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is why we don't have a real radio show. There's no way. There's no way anything I say and or think is getting past any board, no matter how lax. We do not have a bright future at CBC Radio, in case you were wondering. <laughs> NPR will not be calling. <laughs> so the murders horrified the public, and the fact that all but one of the principal perpetrators went entirely unpunished infuriated the people of Edinburgh, As particularly the murder of James Wilson. Both McDougal and Mrs. Hare were harassed by mobs of angry citizens. Hare remained in protective custody until he could be smuggled out of the city. All three left Edinburgh and faded away into anonymity elsewhere. Huh. Knox, as previously mentioned, went unprosecuted, but his once promising career was destroyed, which will tend to happen when the general public suspects you of being the ringleader of a morbid year-long murder-for-profit scheme. God, I just hate it, you know, biggest career killer in America. You know, always happens. Corpse-selling rings. The vast majority of well-educated, unemployed people, they just got peer pressure to happen, and they got caught up in a corpse-selling ring. It's tragic. <laughs> so much potential. Gone to waste. Public distress over the case and the general trade of illegally obtained human bodies helped compel the passage of the Anatomy Act of 1832, which expanded the corpses available to medical science to unclaimed bodies from hospitals, prisons, and workhouses, and provided a legitimate system by which corpses could be donated with the consent of nearest kin. So it has a happy ending. Yay! Sort of. If your happy ending is an increased availability of medical cadavers. Yeah. Woo. That's the best time story i got read as a child i don't know about you <laughs> it was important for medical science but it is very morbid the act is now considered an important part of the history of medical science and it effectively ended the trade of resurrectionists and burkers it was controversial at the time of its passing and for many years after leading to this quote from one of its opponents a member of parliament william cobbett they tell us it was necessary for the purposes of science science why who is science for 
Not for poor people. <laughs> is that an exact quote? That is an exact quote. I am not oh exaggerating. Oh my god. Was he stroking a long-haired white cat and turning around in a chair while he did this? Doubtfully. It was sort of like this idea that like- Same sentiment. It was undignified to take the bodies of poor people from workhouses just because their families had, had not claimed them and to use them for medical science. That was basically the claim being made. I mean, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect system, but it's, but it's way better than like- It's this or murder. Murder. <laughs> and grave robbing. <laughs> murder and grave robbing. <laughs> This is, this is sort of a lesser of two evils situation right yeah, here. Yeah, and, like, the reason why I bring up that quote is because, like, yes, science mostly benefited, in the 1800s at least, mostly benefited the wealthy. But Burke and Hare's victims were absolutely, overwhelmingly poor people, like, just struggling to scrape by who had their lives ended because of this fucked up trade in human bodies. So just don't be poor if you can avoid it. Don't be poor if you can avoid it, or at the very least, donate your body so that no one has to die. (laughs) God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a moral for a children's book, isn't it? Yeah. I think we've all learned something today. (laughs) The world is horrifying. The world is horrifying, and it always has been. (laughs) And if you go get your appendix out, and you don't die, and you get to keep living, it's because many, many corpses were snatched out of Victorian graves. You you better thank all the poor little old ladies and little old men who were stolen from their families directly from the plot they had been buried. You owe them a debt of gratitude. (laughs) They did what they did for science, by which I mean being stolen (laughs) involuntarily and without their knowledge or consent sort of the the pillars of science really yeah (laughs) it is somewhat better now which is why you should absolutely go fill out your donor card or at the very least put in your will that you'd like your corpse to go to science and preferably have a conversation with your nearest of kin that you do in fact want that to happen and make sure they're comfortable with it or at the very least yeah just don't dig fresh corpses out of grave plots at the very at least, the very like, least. <laughs> respect the grieving process don't steal corpses although interestingly nope this is not this is not something with a butt <laughs> no this is this is a fun fact i swear oh, this oh, is a fun fact. fun okay good so uh at one point i because i know very many lawyers i i happened to ask one of them who corpses belong to oh no because it would be very weird because like the body doesn't belong to you and the body doesn't belong to your next of kin i think i know which lawyer you asked this to but then who does the body belong to and according to my lawyer friend technically your body doesn't isn't considered to belong to anybody because like you can't just do anything with a body like you could with if, if it was your own property instead your body when you die becomes the property of the state so within the canadian context or anywhere else within the british empire your body belongs to the queen oh good <laughs> Technically, the queen owns your corpse. Queen Elizabeth. Very, very technically. Queen of corpses. Good Queen Beth. She look after it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I'm glad we have friends who know that. That's actually how she's lived this long, through eating the corpses of deceased human beings. Okay, that's the kind of thing that gets us sued. (laughs) That's straight up libel. (laughs) Technically, she's a public figure. I can say what I want. I, I don't know that that's true. 
<laughs> it's parody. <laughs> okay, sure. Satire. And that's going to hold up in court. Yes, it is. Technically. I hope our lawyer friends are feeling generous <laughs> when you get sued. <laughs> uh, one in particular might oppose the fact that I, I revealed that he said that the queen owns your corpse on live air. He might oppose that. Don't be mad. <laughs> I know who you asked. I'm not going to say the name. <laughs> I don't. I wasn't present for this conversation. Just I just, just know. I have a feeling. In any case. Uh, <laughs> we need less creepy friends. There's no way we're going to get less creepy friends. You're going to have to stop hanging out with me if you want less creepy friends. But as is, I am one of the creepiest of your friends and I have no hope. It's creepy people are bust. <laughs> That's true. I can live with that. <laughs> In any case, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Fat, French, and Fabulous. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, we're going to go before we advocate any more crimes. Before I admit to anything else. So I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are Fat... French, French and, and fabulous. fabulous. Cut. That's a wrap. Greetings, supplicants. If you have enjoyed this episode of Fat, French, and Fabulous, and we surely hope you have, please subscribe so that you can keep up with every update. Help support talented independent artists, and also me, and consider recommending us to friends you think will enjoy the podcast or reviewing us to help other people find the show. You can follow us on Facebook at Fat French and Fabulous or on Twitter at Fat French Fab. If you want to follow us individually, you can follow me at I Am Not a Lungfish or Janelle at Very Bad Llama. Or you can follow me at I Am Not a Lungfish. See you next week.